Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. As I said, my name is Will Fett, but today we have a special treat, and your guest host is Casey Blake from Oregon Agriculture in the Classroom. Today's episode comes from one of the top three nursery-producing states, Oregon. Casey, I'll turn it over to you to tell us a little about one of your state's top commodities. So my name is Martha Sleeper. I'm the plant health manager for Averdi Growers. We're a wholesale plant nursery in Forest Grove, Oregon. Could you talk about your educational background and or professional training? Sure. So my education started when I was a pretty small person because my parents were both botanists. My dad worked at the University of Washington and he worked at the Arboretum there, which is the big park that holds their plant collections. And my mom was a trained taxonomic botanist. She was trained in genetics, but also taxonomy, which is the naming of plants and the classification of plants. So botany was a big part of my life when I was a little kid. And so I always say that I kind of got into botany through osmosis, which is the way that plants take up water. So I took up botany through my roots, so to speak. So I had uh, interest in outdoors, nature, that sort of thing growing up. I wanted to become a forest ranger when I was little. And when I went off to college, I kind of pursued that. Only instead of going into forestry, I went into uh, rangelands management, which is managing grasslands around the country for ranching and wildlife purposes. But that involved a lot of botany, a lot of chemistry, a lot of biology, ecology, that sort of thing. And when I graduated from college, there weren't a lot of jobs available at that point in time. And so my interests sort of changed focus. I got interested in animal husbandry, farming. So had an opportunity to raise sheep for a few years. Uh, my husband and I moved to Oregon 30 years ago. And uh, we bought a piece of property in the foothills of the Willamette Valley. We started raising our family and raising our small farm. I had started raising um, a market garden for selling produce at a local farmer's market. And I also started growing some nursery stock, some perennial plants, and found that was fairly successful. But times were such I needed to get a job, so I ended up going and working for a nursery, sort of through various changes in jobs, I went from selling plants to then learning more about um, the growing of the plants and did some continuing education classes through Oregon State University, through the Extension Service, and ended up in my position here today, where then this has been a 25-year process, so it wasn't short, 
but I've done everything from customer service and sales to managing various aspects of the nursery. And now finally, kind of towards the end of my career, I'm into the safety and pest control and irrigation aspects of things. Yeah, well, it was a long journey, but I say that anything worthwhile, it takes a while to get there, you know. It's been fun. Let's put it that way. It's been very interesting. I really do love what I do. I think it's as much a love of the plants as it is a love of the people that I work with. The people are, in some respects, the heart and soul of what we do. It's been an interesting and wonderful journey with them. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And can you kind of talk about, like, if you're going in, what your day-to-day kind of looks like? Because I'm in management, a lot of what I do these days is more about people and things rather than actually getting out and doing as much with the plants as I'd like. So day-to-day going in, first thing, we have a meeting with all the team leaders. We talk about the weather. We talk about what the plans for the day are. We have multiple teams and they all are focusing on different aspects of nursery production, but they're all interconnected. So we all try to work together and make sure that we're not either hindering somebody else's activities or that uh, we're making sure that things are getting done. And it's just a matter of coordination. And we do that on a daily basis. Some of the teams get together a couple of times a day just as part of that coordination effort. We review safety. Safety is a big part of the nursery. I'm the safety coordinator or safety champion for the nursery. And so that's a big focus of mine. And then the teams kind of disperse. I'll go and I'll check in with I'm in charge of two teams. One is irrigation and one is pest control. And so I go in, chat with the guys, find out exactly what they're up to. Being a manager these days is actually, it's more about people skills and working with people, making sure that my teams have the equipment, the supplies, the things necessary to do their jobs. I will coordinate with planning, making sure that they're getting things done that need to get done around the nursery. And that's that's mostly what I do with the irrigation team. I'm incredibly fortunate in that I have a team leader who worked at the nursery for many, many, many years, knows the system inside and out, and I can just sort of turn him loose to do what needs to get done on a daily basis and check in periodically throughout the day making sure I can be of help when I need to be and making sure that they're getting done what they need to get done. The pest control team takes a little more supervision. These are not big teams. These are four, five, six people teams. With them, it's a matter of making sure that they've got the right personal protective equipment, the PPE, making sure that the chemicals that they're using, they're using them safely, they're mixing them appropriately, and that uh, when they're applying them, they're applying them in the correct manner so that they're not hurting people, they're not hurting plants, that sort of thing. So it's mostly a matter of spending my time making sure the people around me are doing what they can, being the most productive they can, and being as efficient as they can. You offer a huge variety of different plants and some fruits and those things. So who is your end consumer? So we're a wholesale grower which means then we sell to other stores. We don't generally sell to the public. And so our end consumer is the big box stores such as Lowe's and Walmart and Home Depot. Probably 60% of our products goes to the big box stores. 
And then the balance of our product goes to independent garden centers. And right now our markets primarily for the box stores are California, but our independent garden centers, we ship to all over Oregon, Washington, California, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Northern Arizona, Colorado, and I would say probably some places in the Midwest like Ohio, Tennessee, and then to the East Coast. We sell all up and down the East Coast from probably, I want to say Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, down Maryland, Delaware, down clear into Georgia, and a little tiny bit into Florida. And when you say we, you mean your larger organization, right? Actually, I'm speaking just of our nursery here in Oregon. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Our independent garden center customers are really wonderful people to work with. They're kind of a neat group, and they're probably the driving force of our needing to be innovative with the products that we grow and sell. Their customer base wants the newest and best things that are on the market. Our box stores are more of our, I want to say, our commodity customers. They're selling to people who are doing, you know, their backyard landscaping. And so they need hedge materials like uh, arborvitae or boxwoods or photinia or that sort of plant. It's a different customer base, not only in who's buying from our customers, but just uh, what sort of products our customers are looking for. Before you mentioned that your focuses for your organization are pest management and irrigation, could you talk about what you have to do to make sure all the plants are properly irrigated? <laughs> That's a huge challenge. Our nursery grows plants from what we call rooted cuttings, which is where you take a piece of a plant and you put it into a little bit of soil and you add some plant growth hormones and you produce a little tiny plantlet with roots. So we have little tiny plantlets with just little roots all the way up to, uh, I think the largest plants that we grow currently are in a 30 gallon container. And those are 10 to 12 foot tall trees primarily. So it's a wide range of needs for irrigation. We have, like I said, a small team. We have a system that is uh, set up with sprinklers and so our irrigators go around and they measure the amount of water in different crops. At this point in time, they're very experienced, so they can just go around and they can look at the plant. They will take plants out of containers, look at the soil to see whether the soil is wet or dry. They have uh, moisture probes that they can use to test for bigger plants so that we can determine then what the length of time our irrigation sets need to be. And then they can set a whole, let's see, probably a three to four acre section. They can turn the irrigation on and they'll monitor it. And it's primarily the amount of irrigation water that gets on an individual plant depends on the length of time our sprinklers run. It's variable plant to plant. So these guys are running around all day long checking plants, turning water on, turning water off. And it's uh, quite a quite a job for them to be able to monitor all that. And they are busy little guys, let me tell you. Yeah, I bet your water bill must be huge. So here's an interesting thing. Yes, our water bill is huge. 
We are fortunate in that we are part of a Bureau of Reclamation Irrigation District. Our irrigation district is the Tualatin Valley Irrigation District. Hague Lake is a reservoir that is up in the foothills, not too far from the nursery, and that's the main source of water for us during the summer. We also, like I said, have two creeks that run through the property. We have water rights, and this is something that's kind of interesting to me, and that you have to have a right to use water that flows through your property. And so we are very fortunate in that the nursery has water rights to Gales Creek water for a period of time during the summer. And so we are able to use water from Gales Creek for about four months during the spring and summer before the water flow gets too low. And then we are locked out of the Gales Creek. So we have that source of water. We have a 22-acre irrigation pond that's about 10 feet deep. And that is our main source of water, but we get water from the Tualatin Valley Irrigation District that comes in through a series of pipes, and we can pipe water from the irrigation district into our pond and then pump it back out of our pond. Oregon has a regulation that we have to have a closed irrigation system from the months of May to October, May 1st to October 1st. And what that means is that all water on the nursery has to be recaptured and reused. And so we have a system of drains and pumps that capture all the nursery water is what we call it and puts it back into our irrigation pond from starting May 1st through October 1st. And we actually usually keep the system closed until about November 1st, partly because we need the water if it's a dry October, and we don't want to intermingle nursery water with a low flow stream when we are ready to release the water back into the stream. We want to make sure that our water is somewhat clear and clean before we do. Reusing the water is kind of an interesting thing because the water changes properties. It gets a lot dirtier because it's going through plants and soil through the season. And so we have to have filters that clean it. It's just part of the whole process. Yes, we do have a big water bill. We also have a big power bill because we have 13 pumps that pump water all over the nursery. And uh, those pumps are electric pumps and they're hugely expensive to run. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. I like that you got into talking about water a little bit because when I was talking to Mark last week, I was saying that Oregon has a really unique relationship present day with how it sees water and uses water and thinks of water rights based on its history in like the Mm -hmm. 80s, 90s. Right. So the water rights for the nursery go back to 1949. Wow. Right. Which is why, like I said, we're very fortunate. And that's for the Gales Creek. We had to purchase a water right for the Tualatin Valley Irrigation District water. We don't have any wells on our nursery, and so we're using 100% surface water, which is also sort of an unusual thing. But yeah, the water rights are, I think our our TVID water rights go back to 1974, when the nursery was first purchased by Glenn Walters, and they were the ones who put in the system. And then the water rights go with the property when the property is sold. Water rights is interesting because 
a water right history, and I've learned this from the Soil and Water Conservation District folks. So the first person to get a water right, maybe they don't use all the water, so then another person can come behind them and use some more of the water until there's no more water to be had, so to speak. But during the summer when the stream drops, then the person with the youngest water right, they get kicked out of the stream first. So their pumps get locked and you can't pump out of them anymore. And so we are fortunate in that we are not the oldest, we're the second oldest. We can generally go into July on a good year. Sometimes we've gotten kicked out as early as June on a droughty year. It really depends. I mean, we are certainly at the mercy of Mother Nature on that sort of thing. Yeah, understandable. And, and you talked about you have a wide variety of all sorts of agricultural experiences that led you to where you are now or contributing in some way. So could you share why do you think it's important for people to know about and understand agriculture? Oh, absolutely. Way back before we moved to Oregon, one of the jobs I had was managing a, a small farm on a city park in uh, Redmond, Washington. And as part of this park, we had a number of preschool classes that would go through and they always like to go see the animals and of course the baby animals in the spring, the lambs and the goat kids and piglets and all that. And you know, one of the things I recognized was that these kids had no clue where their food came from. And they really were not associating the piglets or the lambs or the goats or the chickens even with the food that they ate. So I developed a program that was kind of, you know, <laughs> pig to pork sort of thing. Because to me, it's important to recognize, you know, the milk does not come from the store in a carton. It comes from a cow or it comes from a goat. The eggs don't come from the store in a carton. They come from a chicken. It's just important to me to recognize that small farmers or farmers in general and the ranchers and the people who would work in our woods, all of these people are what provides us with food and shelter and clothing in, in many respects. And that without them, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be able to survive. And I think that there are too few people who recognize even today that if it weren't for the farmers and the ranchers and the people who work in the woods, their lives would be very, very different. And so agriculture is what is kind of the umbrella for all of those things. It is very important to have people understand where their food comes from, where the wood for their homes comes from or the plants that make their lives beautiful and pleasant to be in. That's all important. And without that, it would be a very, very different place. Yeah, I think that's very true. Could you talk about the technology and innovation in your industry? There's lots of things technology-wise. If you're looking at mechanization, some of the things that we are working with actually that are fairly new to our particular nursery are things like pruning machines. We are working to putting plants on conveyor belts that run them through a tunnel that have blades that are cutting and pruning everything to identical shapes and sizes. That's a fairly new innovation for us. There's things like uh, we just actually purchased a wonderful machine that we use in our in-ground sections where we actually grow the plants in, in the field. And it uses GPS it drills a hole, we can plant a plant behind it, and then we can change out the drills and put 
pruning blades on it and it remembers the pathway and where it was planted and so then it can run back over the plants in a year and prune them to size. Uh, it's a fascinating machine. Ag mechanization is becoming much more prevalent in the nursery industry. And actually, a lot of these machines are coming over from the Netherlands and Germany. As far as other technologies go, we use a lot of things like we do soil analysis. We're monitoring pH ECs, which are salts, which would be an indicator of fertility. So we're monitoring that using different meters. We use moisture meters, like I said earlier. On our canning line, we have actually a lot of that is automated as well when we're putting, say, a smaller plant into a larger size container. We have a machine that automatically mixes the soil, which would be a combination of bark and pumice and compost or peat moss and different amendments like fertilizer or lime, um, that sort of thing. And all of that is computer controlled, comes out on a conveyor belt, runs through a tumbler to mix it up, and then it goes through a couple of series of hoppers and conveyors and gets put filled into pots and then we have people on the line planting plants into these pots that have this pre-made soil in them and it's all done on a continuous basis and on an as-needed basis so if you're planting we can do 20,000 one gallon plants in a day so you've got wow. enough soil that it mixes enough for 20,000 one gallon boxwoods let's say and it still all takes people to run it the future is robotics, and there are actually what they call spacing robots, and um, they're kind of fun little guys, and they've got arms, and they pick up a container, and they move it to a new spot, and it's all programmed. And so there's a lot of that sort of thing that's coming up in the future. Not quite there yet, but it's getting there. What larger consumer trends have you been seeing in your industry? Well, again, I think the stay-at-home orders have, have made people want to be home and fix up their homes. And so they're revamping their landscaping, they're redoing their yards, they're putting in a lot of edibles. We've seen a huge, huge increase in our edibles, the blueberries, blackberries, grapes, uh, strawberries, that sort of thing. The other thing is fruit trees. We don't grow fruit trees for sales at our nursery, but our sister nurseries do, and uh, the sales of the fruit trees have just been through the roof. The other trend, because land is becoming scarce, people are buying properties with smaller lots. And I think that what's happening is that people still want their yards. They still, even though they have smaller places, they still want their yards. And so they want landscape material that fits those small yards. And so that means more dwarf materials, more dwarf trees. A maple that grows 50 feet tall is not going to be really suitable in a yard like that. So they're, they're looking for smaller trees that will fit the size of the yard. They're looking for dwarf bushes. They're looking for plants that are more maintenance-free, uh, require less pruning, that sort of thing. Hanging baskets, container gardens, that sort of thing are also trends that are happening. And so we're trying to support that with bringing in new genetics, new varieties of material, growing some of these smaller trees. We are one of the major growers of uh, Japanese maples, which are smaller dwarf trees in the area. And that aspect of our business has, why well, I wanna say doubled or tripled 
um, the demand for our Japanese maples has really gone up. And it's because they're smaller trees. They look pretty. They're pretty tough. Um, they can grow in a lot of environments, that sort of thing. So the trend, the trend is going smaller. Yes, I would say so. And certainly not bigger. And also for street trees, you think Portland, for example, has on uh, the park blocks, has all those beautiful elms and which are wonderful trees, but not really practical in a suburban neighborhood. So again, a street tree would be something that would probably top out at about, oh, 25 or 30 feet tall and maybe a, a more columnar shape, uh, something so that it's not impacting the sidewalk or the roadway, that sort of thing. So there's understanding what the needs of our urban and suburban areas are, and then trying to provide plant material that fits in those environments. And certainly there is a need for all of it because with global warming, I think there's a demand to grow more trees in urban areas, especially. Another thing that's kind of a trendy thing is living roofs or living walls will absorb water, but it can handle heat. They'll actually deflect heat. Taking out lawns and putting in xeriscaping is, is kind of a new trend, that that's something that we're gonna see more of in the future so that you don't have to irrigate your front lawn and it's okay if it's not bright green in the middle of summer, that sort of thing. And your job exposes you to a wide variety of different things. Could you talk about what the best and the worst part about your job is? The best part of, of my job, it's actually twofold. It's working with the people and it's working with the plants. And I'm very fortunate in that I get to work in an environment that is absolutely stunningly beautiful. I get to work every day. I get to watch the sunrise behind Mount Hood, over my pond, over the big lake that we've got, our irrigation pond. I, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And then I turned around behind me and I can watch the sunset in the foothills of the coast range. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's a beautiful place. The people are delightful. They are why I do what I do every day. They are hardworking, honest, lovely people. The plants, I love working with plants. I've, I've obviously loved it for a long time. Um, and I enjoy the innovation that comes with plant breeding, getting to know plants, getting to solve problems with plants, whether it's soil or disease or weed issues. I, I, I'm a problem solver. I like doing that sort of thing. since I've kind of been in this position and contacted with you, but could you kind of explain, because I don't really know, what is your educational background and your training? Sure. I um, got my master's in teaching from Heritage University. I got my first license in Washington, and then I taught three years in Salt Lake. And then I've been in the Beaverton School District for, I think this is my 12th year now. And how long have you been in the area you are? I've always been in elementary. I spent one year in middle school over at Highland Park. So are you native to that area of the U.S.? I'm from eastern Washington. My wife got into medical school at University of Utah, and so that's what brought me there. And then she got her residency at OHSU, and so then we moved to Portland. Oh, wow, neat. So yeah. you kind of left the region and then came back to the area. Yes, yeah, I love the Northwest. 
And so when you were in Utah, did you do any kind of like education agricultural wise to your students there? I did not. I got my technology endorsement when I was in Utah, but we did a summer camp, which I wished that we had in elementary school here. It was at Mill Hollow, and it was a three-day trip up into the Uintas in the Wasatch area, I think. Three days of just exploring nature and walking trails and learning about trees and the ecosystem. It was a fantastic program. I got to do that for three summers. Oh, that's super neat. I think the the Utah area has some of the coolest national parks in the U.S. as well. It is such a fun place to explore. Yeah, we loved living there. Yeah. And so can you talk about your current role and what you do to like what your kind of typical day looks like now too? Well, currently right now we get online about 8.30 and we start with math and we go till about 9.20 and then the kids break and we come back at 10 and we do science and social studies for a half an hour. And then the kids go to music or PE. The students come back at 12.30. We do writing for a half an hour and then we do kind of a walk to read, an online version of a walk to read program from 1 to 1.30. And then I'm, I kind of have like open out office hours till 2 if kids need to check in with me. Okay. Yeah. It sounds pretty structured then. It sounds like you yeah. got a rhythm going. Yeah. We finally got it. The spring was very, very difficult and confusing for like for everybody. But this fall, we had a better vision of what we needed to do. And then we got the experience. We were kind of just, you know, thrown in to learn the tools in the spring. And I think most teachers found their rhythm maybe <laughs> early October. <laughs> Now you get a nice little reprieve as you go into holiday break, and then you'll come back and hopefully have some new energy, I guess. Absolutely, yes. So what would your kind of daily education stuff look like before COVID then? In regards to the garden and those things, we have an amazing PTO that really wanted us to become a green school, and we've been working Mm -hmm. on that, trying to make sure that we get all the requirements taken care of and just outreach to programs like Clean Water Services and Oregon mm-hmm. Agriculture in the Classroom and Steelheaders Association and, and just trying to create those connections. There's some great organizations in the area too, if you want to talk about some of the organization and the role they've played with educating your kids. Absolutely. So Clean Water Services comes out and they talk about how our wastewater is managed and then how they feed it back into the river system clean, actually cleaner than when it when it goes in. And then I do trout in the classroom with the Steelheaders Association. And there's a partnership between those two. And Clean Water Services goes and they do a presentation when we raise rainbow trout in our classroom. We start them as eggs and then we release them at Commonwealth Lake. And Clean Water Services comes and they do a demonstration. They sample the water. They collect insects. It's just a fantastic program that they've established. We're very grateful to have a relationship with them. Yeah, and that's something you usually do in the spring, right? Yeah, yeah. We do the trout, but they do salmon too, and the salmon are in the fall. Yeah, so if you could talk about any of your experience with greenhouses or incorporating plants into your classroom too. Sure. We have a staff member that's a botanist. She got her undergrad with a botany degree. And last year, we were able to propagate African violets, which was just awesome. She helped me run the whole program and the kids were able to propagate a leaf and then put it in our indoor grow light kit. And they're actually now maturing. So we're actually sending those plants home now that we propagated last fall. And then this year, our plan was to, all of this is new to me. I'm kind of learning as I go. And I didn't know there was a lot of plants that you could grow outdoors in the winter. And there's a lot of greens that you can grow. So we bought starters two years ago. We did kale and spinach and carrots and broccoli, and we planted those and they did really well over the winter and we got to observe them. And this year 
the plan was to grow them in our indoor grow light kits and then plant them as a class. But obviously we weren't able to do that, but hopefully we can do that next year. Yeah. What do you think has been something that you've kind of gained from working with plants a lot more? Just that it's endless. It's a rabbit hole. There's always something new to learn. And the thing that I've really been impressed by is just how you can adapt it to like STEM science fair projects. That's Mm -hmm. kind of been my focus. That's how I started and got involved was I had ran out of ideas for STEM projects. And I thought the garden would be a good opportunity to put some of these things in practice, like the scientific method. And so once we started doing that, it kind of opened up all these doors. And so there's always something new to learn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's easy to become very overwhelmed when you talk about the world of plants. For instance, for the African violets, for our STEM fair project, we used growth hormone on some. And then on some of them, uh, we used less light. And then on some, we used more water. So it was a great science experiment, hands-on, that we could observe daily in the classroom. Yeah, and you had borrowed one of the kits for a while. You still have it, I guess, the aquaponics kit. In uh... Yes, yep. It's <laughs> sitting right next to my door. <laughs> that was a big learning curve for you guys, too. You guys are having trouble, your class was having trouble getting things kind of growing, right? It was a lighting issue. Yeah, it was. Um, that one was difficult. So I was doing too many water changes. I was changing the water too frequently. So once I slowed down on, on water changes, it provided enough nitrates for the plants to get their energy, more energy that they needed to grow. And I, we, were, we were successful this year. We were not successful the first year. That's kind of a little tricky thing to do. Washington County is, is an interesting county in the state itself because for a lot of reasons, but it's very rural in some areas, but it's also very urban in others. So you have farmers in Washington County, and then you have people that look like your classroom, you know, you have backgrounds that come from like a very urban area, you know? Yes. Yep. And and I appreciate you kind of bridging that gap in a way of trying to bring agriculture into your classroom more. Why do you think it's important for people to know about and understand agriculture? In my opinion, just to know where your food's coming from, how far it had to travel, what kind of carbon footprint was involved, just everything. And, and like I said, I'm just, I'm learning this as we go too. It's just the carbon footprint is kind of what I've been focusing on lately. We try to go to our local farmer's market and support farmer's markets and those types of offerings. It's just, I think it's really important. General question, what is the best part of your job? Seeing light bulbs. I hate to be cliche, but when you can connect with a kid and you watch them discover something for the first time or have some growth and some learning, just to see that awe and that excitement. I mean, that's, that's what brings you back. That's, that's the best part of my job. Yeah, no, that's totally understandable. And that is pretty great. Do you have any recent experiences? Usually math. Math is the one. You know, a kid's been working on a math problem for a while in my small group. If it's fractions or multiplying fractions, and when they finally grasp the concept, and you can just see their face light up and beam. It's pretty awesome. I guess what would you say is the worst part of your job? When you're unable to connect with a kid or you feel like you failed a kid, that's the absolute worst. When you know that you just have this small fraction of time with this student and for some reason you just you can't bridge that gap, you can't communicate at the same level, you're not helping them grow as a student or a person, and you just kind of feel like a failure. That's the hardest part. Yeah, no, that is pretty disheartening. However, we had a counselor a few years ago that I shared that same feeling, and she had a really good point. She said, you know, you might not witness that connection that you had with that student, but years from now, a positive thing that you said to them, they might have connected with it. You might never know, but down the road, you know, you have made a difference. You have made an impact. So I, I try to remember that. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. 
Yeah, can you talk about your school and its location stuff? Because I think it's unique, and I think when people might imagine the Northwest or kind of Portland area, they might have a picture in their head, but I don't think Washington County or Beaverton School District fits that. Yeah, we have a very diverse population. We are a Title I school, which means we have a percentage of free and reduced lunch. That impacts some of our families. And so, yeah, very diverse. And then, yes, and being a Title I school. And so do some of your students come from backgrounds that are closely connected with agriculture as well? Not many. Not many. Why did you become an educator? Oh, that's a great question. That's an easy question. I got my undergrad in business. And I worked as a sales manager in a hotel for a few years. And then I did enterprise rent-a-car for a couple of years trying to work up their management program. And I just wasn't fulfilled. I just quit the business world and I did AmeriCorps. And my AmeriCorps position was uh, literacy intervention in elementary schools. And I did that and I just was like, this is the job for me. I love it. And then I went to a master's in teaching program that I was able to get my master's and my license at the same time. I haven't looked back since, and I love it. And why in elementary, or why fourth grade? I taught one year in, in middle school, and you have to have a very thick skin. I don't think I have a thick enough skin to teach middle school. And elementary, they're just there's this youthfulness, there's this excitement to learn, and for the most part, a lot of the kids still enjoy being in the classroom and being with you and learning. Not that that's not true in middle school, but it just seems more true in elementary. You have an amazing garden. Yeah. If you want to talk about your garden a little bit, that'd be great too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like I said, I had kind of run out of ideas for the STEM fair. And so one year I had the kids design a a garden using area and perimeter and design. And then we took that idea. I took a lot of pieces of their idea and we had a STEM team at our school and our STEM team reached out to our district and maintenance services. And we had, you know, follow their guidelines, like our school can have a maximum of five garden beds. So we figured out an area, we had to turn in our CIP, we had everything approved by maintenance services. And then my father-in-law and I created and built the garden beds. We did four of the garden beds. And then one of the members of our STEM team reached out to the Boy Scouts and they built our fifth garden bed. So we kept it small. What I've learned is it's really important to have a staff that's supportive, or at least some teachers in the building that want to access the garden. You need to have a PTO that's involved so parents can look after the garden over the summer. There's volunteers that come and water and weed. And then a school that has, you know, three to five teachers that are engaged to keep it running. Because, you know, I, I know that you know this as well, that if there's not a lot of people maintaining the garden, then the garden dies and it just kind of falls by mm-hmm. the wayside. So we yeah. started small and that, that would be my biggest recommendation for any school or teacher that's thinking about doing it. Start small and make sure you have some other people invested. You guys were instrumental in helping us create our program at Shehalem. Your predecessor, Cassia, just pretty much held my hand and walked us through the whole program. So we couldn't have done it without Oregon Ag in the classroom. I commend you. Thank you so much for your help in creating our garden at our school. Yeah, no problem. And your school might have a little more cumbersome rules and stuff to get over because your district is just very large and they have a whole set of rules for those kinds of things too on setting up a garden and whatnot. Why do you take the extra initiative to use food and agriculture in your classroom? All kids can relate to food. It's just like a universal language. Everyone connects with food. So it's just, it's a nice platform to start with or to connect with. Yeah, I agree with you completely. 
why is agriculture important? How do you see agriculture helping achieve curricular goals? There are so many teachable moments through agriculture, through the soil, through the plants, through aquaponics. You can tie in all sorts of different math concepts into a garden measurement. Mm -hmm. You can do history. You can tie it into social studies. You can read books. You can do language arts. You can just tie everything into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting out here, too, is one of the big parts of the economy is agriculture, you know, nursery and greenhouses. That's like one of the the number one economic booster in the state. Hazelnuts, right? Aren't we known for hazelnuts? We are the number one ranked state in hazelnuts. Hazelnuts, that's right. And also big producer of like different seeds, crimson clover, orchard grass seed, fescue seed ryegrass seed all in the 90th percentile or above for those things. But in terms of like commodity value, greenhouses and nurseries are number one. What changes in your classroom when using food and agriculture? What is the student response? It varies. That's probably one of my biggest challenges right now is making sure that you're not going to reach all the kids, sadly, but the kids that are really invested, it's important to have small groups. For example, what I've learned is if I try to take the whole class out to our garden, kids get distracted and there's not a lot of hands-on learning. It's hard to have all the kids being active participants. So Mm -hmm. in the classroom, it's the same thing. The kids that are most motivated to work, you kind of just pull them out, create small groups. That's probably my biggest learning curve right now is figuring out how to manage a class and engage the kids that are really excited about it. This is only our third year, I think, having the garden, and that's what I'm trying to learn. Why have you chosen these activities, and what is your favorite aspect? So far, the favorite activity, probably uh, propagating the African violets. That was really fun to do with the kids, and then they have this beautiful plant when we're all finished that they get to take home, and then they could propagate it again at their house if they wanted to, now that they know how to do it. Do you have any success stories of them all planting? Yeah, we had, I'd say, maybe success rate of about 70%. We have light on them right now. And what I did, you know, it's just learning by mistakes, right? I overwatered them. And so they're growing a lot slower than they could have. And then the pots that we put them in were smaller than they probably should have been. So next time, less water, bigger pots, and they would grow a lot fast. They're still growing. They're just growing a lot slower than they could be. That, that at least they're still growing. You didn't kill them. That's good. Yeah, no, they're doing well. And the ones that we sent home these last few weeks are just gorgeous. How does teaching agriculture connect to your students' potential future careers? Just building that foundation. Hopefully you can spark an interest that'll make them read more or when you're tying in your math. Just basically right now I'm looking at it as just helping create that foundation in all aspects of their learning. In regards to where it will take them, I don't think I'm there yet. I'm not there yet. (laughs) That's a great question. Yeah, and I think the obvious connection to agriculture is their food, but also in teaching agriculture, it's a very hands-on experience for for students, and some students learn a lot better in that hands-on. Absolutely. And getting them outdoors, just getting them outside of the classroom. Something that I learned through this process is I always thought I was inconveniencing programs like Oregon Ag in the Classroom and Clean Water Services. And what I've learned is that those programs are there and they want to get into the classrooms and they want to create those relationships and build those relationships. And I always thought I was kind of inconveniencing those programs. And if any other teachers are out there, you know, feeling like they're inconveniencing a program, 
from what I've learned is no, they want to build that connection. And that's probably my biggest takeaway that uh, there's advantages on both sides to create these, these relationships. Yeah. Thank you very much for pointing that out. I think that I want everybody to know about our program and use all of our resources. And I want to meet way more teachers and any way I can do that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Please take advantage. Definitely. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Agriculture in the Classroom programs in your local area, visit agclassroom.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and visit the show notes to learn more. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field. Thank you.